Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. And sitting with me in a rather noisy Hammersmith are Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And we're joined for this episode by the excellent Chris Roberts, former mainstay of sounds and melody maker, author of books on ABBA, Talk Talk, and most recently, The Velvet Underground. And an actual musician to boot. Welcome, Chris. Hi there. Good to be here. (laughs) We're going to talk to you today about your career and about Radiohead and Missy Elliott. But let's start where we usually start, which is, was there one record or musical experience or moment that caused you to sell your soul to rock and roll? I think, like a lot of people in my generation, Ziggy Stardust and T-Rex, Metal Guru, that kind of 1972-1973 were the, when the, the scales fell from your ears, as they were, <laughs> and, you know, music became this wonderful other planet that you had to visit. Then as for getting into the, into the writing of it, I was uh, early 80s, mid-80s, unemployed, and it seemed like a good thing to try to do. I wrote, I did an on-spec review of Iggy Pop at the venue and sent it to all the papers and all of them got back the next day to wow. my surprise. I mean, I was signing on at the time, so I was delighted. I can't remember why I went with sounds at that time, but I did. And happily ever after from there, of course, without any hiccups along the way whatsoever. <laughs> it sounds like you might have sat there and like representatives from all the major weeks. So you go, well, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, a bidding war. Yeah, yeah a bidding war, exactly. Well, I mean, that's good. Well, I mean, had you read the music press avidly before that? Yes, yeah, big fan. I think for a lot of us at that time, it was kind of your cultural education or entertainment, as much as any lecturers at university or any, anything else was you would read the music press religiously you know and it was then it wasn't just about music you would be tipped off about films or books or art or all kinds of high flown references were were brought in which which did you read I think I dabbled I I, I, you know flirted promiscuously between all of them (laughs) I mean, I'd be because actually, I mean, the enemy was the one which had the broadest remit in terms of outside, beyond pop music, culture, yeah, film, film and, 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 and politics, writers and, and politics, and so on yeah. and so forth. I think the enemy was the hip name at that time. Sure, I like to think that later when I worked for Melody Maker, that we suddenly wasn't anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. I've never heard anyone say they flirted promiscuously between the music, the between record mirror and disco music echo. Yeah, were any were any of them hurt? Depending on who was by your by your promiscuities, your affairs. It depended who was on the cover. I suppose a lot of times if it was a band you liked, you know, if I was into the the Bunny Man and the sound and the Comset Angels you know the, I just wanted to get in the sound of the Comset Angels there because they don't always get as mentioned as <laughs> the many many others um, but I was, and I was a big Paul Morley Paul Morley fan I must be honest oh, I think that's the first and the last Comsat Angels next week it's a Comsat Angels special <laughs> good my work here is done <laughs> yes 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 oh, I'll get me code so were there any particular writers that would uh, yeah. you say were in, influenced you or your uh, style? yeah I, I mean the more pretentious the better at the time <laughs> so Paul Morley was my favourite Ian Penman you know these kind of guys but I remember a writer called Giovanni Dodomo oh yeah, yeah, yeah. sounds who I used to like very much we have him on RBP great yeah, yeah. these were the you know, the more pretentious the more a review would not mention the album the more it would say I'm in the bath looking at the ceiling and then maybe mention the album for two seconds at the end loved it it seemed like beatnik poetry it seemed like jazz 
writing. It was kind of, to my generation of, of Stone students, it seemed like, you know, the way, the way forward. I read a very largely impediment piece against pop music, which I proofread, which is going to the library, I think, maybe next week. And I have to say, I didn't understand a word he was saying. It was extraordinary. It really took me back to, like, 1981, not understanding a word he independent saying. <laughs> uh, he's now turned into an exemplary. I mean, yeah. his, his stuff at London yeah. Review of Books is just it's absolutely wonderful. brilliant. It's absolutely wonderful. But, uh, well, maybe after the episode, but, Chris, Chris could explain, explain this piece. I can, show, you can read it and, and translate <laughs> it to kind of paragraph by paragraph. I'm <laughs> just about the rest of the episode. An analysis. <laughs> So you were, at, I mean, what was the culture like at Sounds as a matter of interest? I went there, it was quite a heavy metal mag at the yeah. time, quite a hard yeah. rock mag. And I think I amused them like this weird animal that wandered into a forest of lions, like this little sort of bush baby, wide eyed <laughs> thing that was saying, writing and saying all these things that didn't fit with Sounds at all. And that amused them, I think. And they would send me to review Black Sabbath or, or Donington or whatever and I would come back and slag it off because that's what I thought you did and I would get lots of hate mail and they loved this they loved the feedback I think you when know. you say they who, who sorry the sound no sorry what I mean the yeah. particular editors or who uh, who was amused it was uh, well the, the, the reviews editor was a quite fearsome woman called Robbie Miller right who you did not upset or cross one glare from her and you you know you were out shaking <laughs> um, and if you're five minutes late because these are the days where you went in with your copy on Tipex paper of course yeah, yeah. if you're five minutes late you felt like the headmaster was you know giving you serious detention. Gary Bushell was there at the time, yeah. uh, who was always very nice to me, I must yeah. be honest. And um, Jeff Barton, I guess, was, would still have been there, the father um, of heavy metal. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was all kind of lots of striped trousers and leather blues on jackets and this kind of thing. Yes. Again, I was a complete fish out of water, but for a couple of years, <laughs> it was very good. I kind of, at that age, you want to make a name for yourself, you want to make a splash. So I was writing, you know, willfully, preposterously controversial things, you know, like, Bon Jovi are the worst band I have ever seen or you know whatever it was just to get, to get feedback which served its uh, purpose I suppose and, and got me noticed you know as no, no, I, I'll yeah. be upfront and honest about that I was trying to get noticed and, yeah. and cool. I was you wrote quite a lot about hip hop according yeah. to you know our even at Sam's right, yeah I mean the first few pieces that we have are yeah. all, are many of them are, are hip hop or like R&B pieces for sounds which obviously was not well, yeah. paper which makes would make them. you almost unique at Sounds because Sounds probably wrote about black music less than any of the, the Inkies. It was very incongruous, but it is a, it is a fact, a statistic. Yes, <laughs> I think we were on the first one of the first covers. We did a cover on hip hop in general. My friend and I, who wasn't really a professional photographer, went down to Covent Garden where there were, there were all these b boys dancing yeah, yeah. and where was, yeah the birth the birthplace of hip hop. Yeah, forget the Bronx, Covent Garden. Downtown Covent yeah. Garden, you know, where the streets get real, yeah. Um, so, but we covered that, we took some shots, didn't interview some of those guys, and I think for the same issue or thereabouts, we interviewed Houdini and Africa Bambata, I think, and a couple of others, Morgan yes. Khan at Street Sounds, perhaps. And uh, yeah, yeah, you did, did a big piece about Street Sounds. Cha- yeah, yeah, championed that among the early adopters probably safe to say yeah the readers weren't that keen at sounds but the editors knew that in advance and they made a conscious decision to we will open our doors to this to their credit you know we know it won't be our best-selling issue we know the readers generally won't love it but it will long-term bigger picture it'll probably be a good move yeah for us
So, Chris, what led to your defection to Melody Maker? What happened there? They came and uh, wooed me. Um, they, uh, I'd. Uh, it sounds awfully arrogant that I was making a splash for myself. I keep seems to keep saying that, but I was. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. And I kind of knew that Sam's wasn't the ideal home in the end. You know, there was a lot of it was kind of Aussie is God kind of things, which wasn't my turf. But and I wanted to be, as I say, my idols had been the Morleys, the Penmans, the the you know, would be intellectual, let's say, writers. And so Melody Maker came, Enemy came as well. But at that time, it was very weird, because I remember going to the pub with the then Melody Maker editors, and they were having to persuade me, and I was going, well, I don't want to come in every day, and I want a sar- and I want expenses for this. I mean, just preposterous things that these days, people cannot believe how it was. Yeah, you'd be yeah. groveling, you'd be yeah. on the floor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, you'd be working for free. You'd be working for free. Please let me work yeah. for free. I mean, there were... When I became a staff writer there. there. There were three staff writers at The Maker at the time, which were the very excellent Simon Reynolds and David Stubbs and yeah, myself. Yeah. You know, nowadays for a magazine of any type to have three staff writers would sound like luxury of the, of the higher silver. I mean, it's very interesting that you arrived at Melody Maker just as it was kind of emerging, becoming the strongest in many ways there have been since the late 60s, I, I, I'd say, um, with Stubbs and with Reynolds. Yeah. But the paper was really changing. If you go from, like, 1984 Melody Maker to 1986, 87 Melody Maker. They're quite different beasts. Yeah. They really are. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are a lot of the same writers still there, but the the, the, the paper has changed and has become really quite substantial in the way that, you know, and very much Reynolds and Stubbs sort of driven, I'd Mm. say. I think when Alan Alan Jones as editor was encouraging new writers to break forth, he wanted a new generation to, to. to um, sure. take over, I think. But I mean, it was, you know, but, 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 but really serious writing, yeah. which was, was really, really, for me, I mean, because I wasn't, re- I was an enemy reader at the time, my job at Rocks Back Pages is actually going to be, can kind of see that quite clearly as a sort of a change in the paper. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I want to ask you very briefly, just a, a tangent about Icon yeah. magazine, because <laughs> I, I was, I met with, Jonathan White. It was a, uh, it was a peculiar thing, wasn't it? It didn't last very long. But you did interview David Bowie for Icon. Were you yeah. were you the editor? I mean, it's, yes. I, you were the editor, weren't yeah. you? That's what I'm recording. It was short lived. Yeah, um, I, I think he. I think I was being interviewed for that position, and I think you 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 got the job. I didn't know that. But as it right. turns out, it's probably Revelation. a good thing I didn't because it didn't last very long. It was strange. I mean, he he. Yeah, he, I went to meet him. He offered very good money at the yes. time. Yes, I'll be it was honest. quite good money. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't regret taking it, no. you know, and it was I, was I was allowed to choose my own team of, you know, deputy editor, features editor, yeah. et cetera. And it was a nice office in Kensington. And we were told, yes, it's going to be monthly, you know, music and arts. And it was a glossy film. monthly magazine, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right, yes. And it seemed too good to be true. And ultimately it was, because the company didn't seem to know what they were doing. They'd never been involved in publishing. They, after a couple of issues, <laughs> yeah. they were starting to say, you must do this, you must do that. The, the initial freedom we'd been promised was being, you know, editorial control was being taken away, which kind of came to a head when I think the fifth or sixth issue, which would be the last one, I wanted Marty Scorsese on the cover. They insisted Patsy Kensit must be on the cover. No disrespect to Patsy, but it no. was a different kind of headspace to you know what we that we've been hoping for. A kind I mean, of obviously well, Patsy's had a much more impressive career and her films, <laughs> you know, like Lethal Weapon Two or whatever that beats the hell out of a Casino. But um, yeah, the the company didn't really know what they were doing in the end. They didn't have any publishing experience. They hadn't 
pre-planned the sort of the not to bore people but the business side yeah. the advertising side that that kind of thing but we did have some fun and we did some great stuff you know we did some great articles and stuff i went to new york to interview bowie the second of three times i interviewed bowie which you know are, are treasured memories for me as a huge bowie fan we um, have that audio on on rock's back pages ah, right, it's right, yes. one of yeah. maybe three okay they all tell you many things but one thing they all tell you is what are just utterly charming Oh, human being. He charm was. offensive. Absolutely. Charm offensive. Yeah. yeah. Offensively I mean, charming. I mean, <laughs> but, but do you think it was just a charm offensive? Or do you, because I always thought it actually was genuinely a, a, a decent, nice human being. I always think, even if he had Coco or a helper outside the room the minute before he came into the room going, like, this guy's called Chris or Barney yeah. or whoever. Charm offensive. And you've met him before. Yes. <laughs> and he lives in so and so. And then, because he, he would. Yeah, you know, he could swan into the room and go, Chris, how's Hammersmith? You know, which, I mean, that is smooth. <laughs> he could have been a politician. Couldn't he, that really? is smooth, you know, because you're immediately impressed. You're yeah, like, he remembers yeah. me, you know. Yeah. And I did find him lovely, you know. Another time he came in, I think it was from 99, when the Hours album was out, and he came in with a cassette and he goes, hi, Chris, I've just been remixing this track seven. I've literally just come from the studio. Will you, will you, do you mind if I play it? Will you hear it with me? You, and I'm thinking, I'm, a, I'm the first person to hear this in the world. You know, the teenage me is thinking, David Bowie's asking me if I mind hearing his new <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, and well, that's a bit too much. Yeah. But you go away thinking, wow, you know, it's a, the teenage me is so thrilled, you know. Oh, so. That's lovely, yeah. yeah, really nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so briefly, let's ask you just about your, when did you first make music yourself? And had that always been an aspiration and a goal? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing that so, since always, teenage exactly. days. Yeah, and uh, I mean, if I, when you asked me, it, why did I become a music journalist? I suppose I should have said because none of the bands were taking off. But then, yeah, I, had a, I took a sabbatical in 1991 because we really liked the stuff I was writing when we were doing under the name Catwalk. Yeah. So we had a couple of records out on dedicated records at the time with label mates like Spiritualized and The Cranes. I got an unknown guy called Ed Buller to produce them from a demo tape. Ed, the things that Ed did after that were the, de- the first pulp records and the first suede records. So they must have liked something on their Catwalk records. The only track he didn't produce was produced by Kim Deal from the Pixies, who was a friend of mine at the yeah. time. So I remain the only British musician ever produced by Kim Deal. Fantastic. Which is probably going to be on my, you know, three lines for your CV at the end of the day. <laughs> and great times. I mean, it didn't take off. It wasn't a hit or whatever. You know, got, got back into journalism. But I've made other records under other names since then. And yes. always enjoy doing so. And it satisfies that creative itch. Yeah. Is, is there any, like, symbiosis between what you've written about over the years and the music you've made I mean does, do they yeah. correspond in any way at all I think or things you like to write about prob- probably not I think I kind of compartmentalise in a way you know you do because you're, you're in a different sort of head yes. um, I mean of course influences will, will come in you know if you grown up listening to Bowie and T-Rex then some of the stuff is going to or you know but then the second Album made under the name Scarlaland, we were trying to be the Blue Nile and Prefab Sprout, I think. You know, so yeah. whatever you're into at that time does kind of filter through a bit, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. How do you find the process of writing music compares to writing about music? That's a really good question. I think with writing about music, I've become practiced at by now and I know the form I know when to have my coffee before I start and when <laughs> I know exactly how long a thousand words will take me 90 right. minutes or two hours or, or yeah. whatever and I know you know the formula because we've been doing it so long with writing songs that comes when it comes you know yeah. it's like you'll be 
fiddling around the, on the guitar watching a film on the sofa at night and something comes in, oh, that's good. Or, so that drops and it drops. And, yeah. yeah, interesting. <laughs> As they come, they go. They know what you don't know. They're slow, slow, quick, slow. Another just tangent, the first book of yours that I was aware of, I don't know if it was the first book with your name on it, was, was Idol Worship. Yes, it was. It's yeah. an anthology of pieces by Bono, mm-hmm. Steve Maltmus of Pavement, Thurston Moore, and Kristen Hirsch and others. And yeah. um, I, the one that always sticks in my mind is the, the Maltmus piece we were talking earlier, because yeah. I think I did an interview with Pavement around that time and, and just thought Stephen's contribution to the book was was absolutely brilliant how but how did you you know get the idea for that harper collins approached me they liked my writing style and, and they wanted me to, to do a piece but also they said so would i be up for editing collating these these compiling these people a mixture of of, of musicians and and perhaps yes. well-known writers so nick hornby was in there martin nick Miller, hornby, of course connor so we aimed high and you know some names you got some you didn't we were amazed when Bono got back and and, and he phoned me up and I was I was living in a pokey little flat at the time as music journalists do um, and the phone rang I was just carrying some chips in from the chip shop and it's Bono on the phone so he had these surreal moments any music journalist will tell you you have these surreal moments often where some swanky rock star calls you from the Chateau Marmont and you're kind of literally changing the cat litter or something <laughs> yes. But, yeah, yeah. There, there are always these uh, contrasts I thought you were going to say your flat mate so, some guy called Bono yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he was very enthusiastic, fair yeah. play, and he wrote this thing about kipping over, at, getting drunk at Frank Sinatra's house and, and, and wetting himself, waking up to find he got so drunk he wet himself on Frank Sinatra's sofa, oh, which is a confession and a half, you know. That is a confession. Um, and as you say, Stephen Maltmus wrote a kind of, I don't know, a theoretical postmodern piece about Eddie Vedder and other topics. Well, that, um, yeah, because, yeah. yeah, that <laughs> whole idea of, like, pavement versus... Pearl Jam in some right. way was a kind of a... Would you just kindly read the subtitle of Idol Worship for us? Because I do love it. I just want to hear it in your... title of yes. Idol Worship in yes. my dulcet tones <laughs> is How Pop Empowers the Weak, Rewards the Faithful and Suckers the Needy. There you go. Nice. Truth, doesn't it, just? Truth, yeah. <laughs> but it, it is a terrific little book. I mean, it's an, it's an unusual book in the kind of canon of rock literature. There's some interesting well, quirky well, I mean, stuff. It, it costs an awful lot now to buy it online. Does it? Yeah, I think Good yeah, to know. Yeah, right? yeah, so, We've um, got a stash somewhere that you can have. We have. Yes, yes, yes. Market, yeah, yeah. We, could, we could auction them off here in this episode. So at some point you're on, you end up on Uncut, late 90s, 97. 97 like it launched, uncut. yeah, I was in, uh, um, involved in the launch, which was the same day that Labour government under Tony Blair were elected, if I remember rightly. The That's how I remember the date. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> things could only get better. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I just wanted to ask, you talked about Bowie's Charm Offensive, and so we we have another audio of yours with Debbie Harry, Um, (laughs) and uh, I just thought we might listen to that and just ask you about, you know, your your experience as an interviewer. So we're just going to briefly listen to this, because it's so lovely. But the Curse of is the narrow thing, yeah? Curse yeah, of Blondie? Curse of Blondie. Yeah. Best song you've ever made, you, you say? Always. Don't you, I? You say no, that with every album? Yeah. Right. Okay. Everywhere. Oh, that's the best one yet. Right. Yeah. But this time you really believe it, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> 
You bastard. You mean it, man. <laughs> I've always meant it. Yeah? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Being called a bastard by Debbie Harris is pretty good, really. Yeah. <laughs> Was that the first time you'd interviewed her? That was the second, I think. The yeah. first time would be 89, 90, when Deaf, Dumb and Blonde solo album came out and I went right. to New York and that was about the most excited I'd ever been as a, a still relatively young, you know, at the, yeah. new at the job, going to interview Debbie Harry in New York, you know, which I'd thought was going to be like a Mondrian painting or Boogie Woogie Woogie or a Scorsese <laughs> film or, or whatever, you know, Yellow Cabs. It was also exciting. And to meet Debbie Harry in Chelsea, at, you know, in New York was the most exciting thing ever for a kid from real in North Wales, you know. Uh, and she was lovely, and uh, she nearly tripped over a dog as we were leaving the cafe. That memory comes back to mind. She, she's, quite, she's lovely, but she's very scatty, you know. She's, she's, she's quite scatty. Quite scatty, as I'm sure you yeah. yeah. This one was 2003, Three, yeah. was it? Yeah, in London. Yeah, the banter there is more over-familiar than I recall. <laughs> I don't remember being that arrogant and rude to her, but I think it's, it, it was fun banter. It was, you know, jokey banter. And she likes to laugh, but she's not a raconteur. She's not an interviewee who's a great raconteur like no. a Tom Waits or, or whoever. So you have to kind of keep keep the energy going, you know. But she's delightful. And, um, and then interviewed again, I think, 2011 or so. Well, you put together um, that, the Panic of Girls sort of book, didn't you? Because I'm yeah. saying you commissioned me to write something for it, as I recall, yeah. in Dim and Distant Past, but I remember it was a whole... It wasn't just an album, was it? It was a whole yeah. kind of thing. It was a tie-in kind of yeah. book yeah. with yeah. the release of the new album that Blondie had, had linked up with. And yeah. um, that was quite... Almost quite nerve-wracking, because you'd have to send it to be approved by Blondie, you know, and you, no writer really enjoys that kind of has no. approved by the artist thing. You know, no. you want to do your own thing, really. Um, Did they approve? But, mostly, yeah, nine times out of ten. It was fine. <laughs> and it went quite, quite well, yeah. 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 Mm. I've, only, I've only twice had things to... I, did, I wrote liner notes for a Rhino Morrissey thing. He just vetoed completely. Mm. <laughs> that takes a badge of honour. And then I think I had to write Rhino liner notes for one of the really bad Doors albums. I can't remember which one it is. Um, and they just, again, just... I the could not parade, there's a soft And I just, I could not... Come on, I couldn't come do on. a sort... I couldn't say, do you know, OK, it's not Strange Days or LA Woman, but, you know, it's got... I, there's nothing good about the It's a pretty poor record. <laughs> Horrible record. Oh. So they... It's got that Come On Touch Me Babe song. Is it, is that touch that? Me Babe. That's yeah, right. Yeah. It was a big hit. It was a, I don't mind Touch Me, funnily enough. No, but, but the, the rest of the record is ghastly, pretentious. It's pretty rubbish. Well, it's not pretentious. It's just cheesy. But it is really pretentious, <laughs> too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. My God. They should have put all of this on the liner notes and then, you know, maybe someone would have bought it. They probably did. <laughs> <laughs> So your Velvet Underground book just came out. Yes. Tell us how you got to write a book about the Velvet Underground. Um, I'd written a book about Lou Reed in 2003, 4, 5, something like that. And We um, won't talk about the Lou Reed interview experience. Let's just say it's the opposite of David Bowie and Debbie Harry. Yeah, yeah, the charm, the opposite of a charm offensive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's just, just a, a cross-out of yeah. the show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, Chris, I fucking hate Hammersmith. Yeah. <laughs> he did tell me my questions sucked at one point, so yeah. There was that. Yeah, so you, you, start, you started really well, but now you're really boring. 
Did he, did he want to talk about amplifiers and guitars at great rate? At times, you had to really work yeah. hard to lift yeah. him away from that, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, it helped that I had, I had interviewed him because that, you know, helps with the book. You've got some kind yes. of su- substance to build, it, to build it on. And the publisher was keen for a Velvet Underground book. I was keen to, to write that because I'm fascinated by Warhol and The Factory and Edie Sedgwick and all that mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of scene as well to bring that in. And, you know, if, if I'm honest, I was kind of... In the 70s, I was into Lou Reed's solo work because I was a Bowie fan and so forth. Yeah. And so I kind of went retrospectively into the Velvets because I'm so young, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was more... In a way, it was more like a learning experience to do that, you know, and to, to delve into that. And it is a fascinating world once you open up that, that you know, layers of the onion and so forth and the whole New York scene. I've always been romantically fascinated by New York of, of that era. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a wonderful yeah, yeah. kind of sp- cast a spell on you. And, yeah, so it just narrates the story. It's a celebration of them. It then goes a little bit into Lou's solo work, because that's my particular pet pet area. Celebrates Kale, Nico, who I only ever met when I sat on her coat accidentally backstage at a Pete Shelley concert, and she said, "Get off my coat." Sit <laughs> 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 on her drugs. Yeah, well, maybe in the pockets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why she really, really wanted a coat back. <laughs> now it really makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, it seems to be well, being well received, and run, run, run. Yeah, it seems like the Velvets are having a bit of a bit of a moment again. But just all, right but now, it's, it's, I mean, they always have a moment. They, they always have a moment. They always have a moment. I mean, which is, I mean mm. we've talked about them recently, and I mean Jennifer Otto Bickerdyke's Nico book came out recently, and yes. like there's, you know, it's it's kind of. I think this stuff is always going yeah. to fascinate people, isn't it? There's a yeah. wonderful moment where you <laughs> you say to Lou, a lot of people are surprised that you're working with Metallica, and in classic Reed fashion, he goes. Name them. Yeah. Who are these people? <laughs> yeah. Literally, like name one. Yeah. Who are yeah. them? Name yeah. one. He goes name one. Yeah. And then he, he's, I think he's going name which website? Which website? You know, has yeah. said this. Yeah. And then there's a kind of and it, this is being recorded for an EPK at the time. So I actually go. This is just ridiculous, isn't it? There's a level. And so I go. Can we cut? Can we take this again? Because it's obviously an awful way to start. At which point, <laughs> that's how it started. Kind of loose, loose. Yeah, that was the first. Yeah, gambit. Oh uh, which kind of he kind of cracks a smile and goes, you know, to let on that he's kind of okay. I'm playing. I'm playing I'm up to the read parody, you know, <laughs> self parody. And then he's pretty much a pussycat after that. But yeah, he was just. He said himself, I think, in an old Alan Jones interview that he loved the idea of Lou Reed, and sometimes he played the character of Lou Reed, you know, and who who wouldn't be attracted by playing this, uh, yeah. you know, extremely <laughs> romantic, fascinating, mercurial maverick. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I completely agree. Sort of appalling human being, but a genuine artist. You know, he's married to Laurie Anderson. Now. She's, yeah, she really. wouldn't, you know, she's, just, she's a wonderful, interesting artist. And a really lovely person. And by all counts, a really lovely person. <laughs> yeah. And so I suspect there is a Lou Reed that he would not let us see, who's an absolute sweetheart. But he wasn't going to let us... In, no. in later years, I, yeah. I would think so, he mellowed. And I think at the end of this interview, I recall, it was all finished and the cameras were off, and he was, I went closer, and you realised how frail and kind of elderly he was at the time, you know, because from this far with the, with the lights and the cameras, you, you just see the myth of Lou Reed. But close up, it, it was the last couple of years of his life, and he right. really was quite frail and, uh-huh. and papery, and he very soft spot. And then he was very kind of, yes, I'm playing Hammersmith next week, and, you know, I, I do hope you can come. And he turned into yeah. this kind of more civil... Not no longer playing the role, you know, sure, yeah. behind the curtain yeah. kind of kind of vibe, which made me warm to him. Right. No, this is interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 
And an abrupt sort of change of, of theme. Um, there are two albums that are turning 25 oh. round about now. And, and the first of them that I thought we'd just talk about briefly is Missy Elliott's debut album, Super Duper Fly. What a record. What a record. What a woman. You reviewed it, Chris, for... Apparently. Melody Maker. And you said her debut album, you, you sort of... You, you give some context to her because you, you know that she has been writing and like producing the Arlea hit, I think, has already, yeah. I think that's already been a hit, one in a million at that point. I may have got the chronology wrong. Mm-hmm. But you say her debut album is something else, managing both the soulful and the futuristic with such a plum that it's either visionary or wonderfully accidental. And then you say, an old soul hounds. We'll be sucked in by the recent hit, a radical sci-fi take on the Anne Peebles classic "I Can't Stand the Rain," which was just called "The Rain," wasn't it? On Super Duper yeah. Fly, a slave to rhythm which bullishly reinvents the dead art of dub. The rest is rootless, refreshingly unique, and unbridled. Do the hustle. So you liked the record, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Just yeah, I mean your your take on on Missy at that point and what a kind of you know breath of fresh air she was. Do you remember when you first? Yeah, I think it was that the mix of that, as you said, the soulful and the futuristic. She was using the material of of soul's history and recent history, and they were making something herself and Timberland were making something new out of it and and futuristic, and it did become the kind of the future of pop music. Little did we know then how much this kind of sound, you know, this kind of stripped down minimalist beat would come to dominate. The other thing that was fascinating is that they were aware of stuff outside of what you'd regard as what they're normally listening to. So Bangra and things like that are lurking in the language of her, her stuff. And, I mean, that's that so interesting, hearing stuff which actually you'd more like to hear in Southall than you'd hear in the Bronx, for example. <laughs> yeah. You know, creeping into, into what they were doing. I, I, we, we, we all love yeah. that, that, that record. I think yeah, you know it did. It did turn out to be visionary, not not accidental as it as it happens, which yeah. is, which is great because I mean she's still making good music. I mean she appeared on Lizzo's album mm. a couple of years ago, and it was kind of like she hadn't put much out, but suddenly it was like that single wasn't really a Lizzo single. It was a it was a Missy single, and she was just there yeah, to kind yeah. of say, "I was here." Yeah. I'm still here, and it, I just yeah. I, I love Missy. But, but but you know the, the amount she contributed, as you mentioned about writing for Ali and people like that, she had been writing and producing for some way before she herself had hits, and she carried on doing that even when her hits stopped. She never stopped contributing to other artists' stuff. Yeah, she she's she's great. Yeah, she's absolutely great. She became one of those names. That, shortly after that, one of those names it was hip to have on your yeah featuring Missy or became a kind of a must have absolutely have thing. And then you do sometimes get a bit of a diminishing returns when you become that name to be tagged on. But but her, you know her best work is 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 great, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she talks about I can't stand the rain. The track that really grabbed me from the off was Socket to Me, which takes the the Delphonics. Ready or not, here I come. And what Timberland does on that, the rhythm that he constructs for that, I, I, it just takes my breath away. I listened a couple of days ago to a podcast that she did with Rick Rubin. You know Rick Rubin's sure. Broken Record podcast, and it's a 
it's a really lovely conversation. She's delightful in it, but she's she's really interesting about. I mean, so we talk about like accidental versus visionary. There are definitely some accidental elements in, sure. in the way Tim. So apparently, Tim Tim, who she calls Tim, yeah, Timothy, Timothy, Tim. I wonder if you said, "Don't do that again." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they've only had some quite cheap Casio keyboard. I don't know whether this was when they were first working together. And he just accidentally kind of selected this kind of barking sound, you know, when they were first working together. And he loved it so much that, that things like those sort of bizarre sounds that, that Tim Lyon would work in came from that moment where he just right. thought... I mean, I think things like, you know, the Justin Timberlake, Crimea River. I mean, oh, the yeah. sounds on, on that are just yeah. extraordinary. I mean, I really do think he's... I don't, what is Timberland doing at the moment? He's, he sort of doesn't seem to be quite I as prominent um, a name in R and B or hip hop. I don't know. I mean, it was so dominant for, yeah. for I want to say fifteen, twenty years because yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. The, the waves of, of it influenced other artists to come. And I wonder if it kind of was partly responsible for guitars going away for a while, or you know, and and pop. The British pop charts certainly became the top ten would all be. Timbaland influenced or Missy influenced, yeah, sure. whether they were good or bad versions of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. It really became the dominant uh, strain. Yeah, definitely. I really mm-hmm. loved even the second album, which I noticed has a bit of a bad rep, uh, The Real World. It, it was very sort of cold and futuristic uh, and sort of cyber, cybertronic kind of sound, but I still think it was really good. Didn't sell that well. And then, then she came back. Did, am I right to say she came back with Get Your Free Con? I think. I'm not sure. I can't. I've got so long ago. <coughs> Which I was can't just remember. like. That's the, the sort of Bangra thing. And I mean, Get yes. Your Free Con was just like. It's the most radical thing yeah. I've heard yeah, in like yeah, five yeah. years. Headbanger. And she's just such a... And musically, she's great. And lyrically, she's great. She's very funny. She's very witty and and clever with it. And her flow is great. The way she raps is is just so influential as well. And, you know, it's a terrible thing to say, but the way she presents herself, her physicality... Is really is good and important. Oh, yeah, she, no, you know, the, room for the larger woman. At a time when the dancers of this world were sort of taking over, it was... She definitely wasn't a diva. She, well, no, she, and, she, and she, a, she, know, she, she wasn't that... She sing like a diva. No, but she, just, she didn't present herself no. as, you know, because, you know, that's, she presents herself as she is. Yeah. yeah. It's a time when body fascism of was course. becoming such yeah, a thing definitely. it was really she, important in both literal and metaphorical yeah. senses she took up the space that she wanted to take uh, up absolutely yeah. end of story yeah. which I think is yeah. fantastic uh, brilliant yeah and that influence who could be a pop star who yeah. would well, be a pop and star someone like Lizzo is a direct sort of you know yeah, yeah. Out, absolutely without whom that. exactly that's yeah. right I agree so on to the second album which has got nothing to do with it <laughs> which is not influenced by Missy Elliott I don't think who knows I mean Timberland might have, might have had some some influence on Radiohead. OK Computer, probably the most famous record. We have added our very first audio interviews with Radiohead. So I'm going to ask Mark to tell us about the first of them. Well, well I mean, we're putting up two and we're going to switch from one to the other. But the first one is, is 
R. Robbins on the phone to Tom and Colin Greenwood. Tom York, Colin Greenwood, from in May '93. So it's 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 pretty early. They just had Creep just been a hit. Pablo Honey had just come out. That's what they're promoting. And you know they're, they're frightfully articulate young men from sort of posh schools in the Oxford sort of regions, and and are very amusing, very interesting. We we'll play a clip. Why have I got clip two written there? Anyway, play a clip. This is some. Um, Tom it, Colin, it is clip two, yes, because clip one was, 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 was Chris Roberts. Was Chris Roberts. Chris Roberts. They're being, being abused by... Uh, <laughs> 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 um, this is them talking about star quality. What the yeah. fuck is star quality, anyway? Everyone yeah. keeps bloody talking about it. All it means is, like, you know, star quality means you're trying to live out some other, someone else's kind of myth or legend and stuff. It's really pissing me off that all the things that have been written about this recently because they're all sort of angling on this he definitely wants to be a star sort of thing, which is kind of... Well, what does that mean? I don't know. I, mean, I think star quality sort of English music back is basically not being too controversial about certain things, like mentioning other bands, slagging them off. Being controversial about flavour of the month topics, like uh, sexuality, uh-huh. and also having a certain like dry humour and uh, sense of irony, being able to be witty off the cuff. It sounds like you've got this pretty well, sir. For God's sake, I mean, like, you think of, like, musicians, like, people in bands, you know, the most important thing is to write good songs and, and play well. It's not to become chat show hosts, our senior hall type people. Well, you're playing some sort of Shakespearean role or something. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, public school. I love the them talk about Shakespearean roles. Yeah, the public school crap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so yeah, they, they talk about the band's, you know, image and all that sort of part of that, about recording, because it was a relatively new experience to them at that point, going to recording studios. They talk about the meaning of a Pop is Dead single. Uh, we'll play a clip at the end of the podcast where Tom particularly talks about creep and lyrical scrutiny, about sort of having the, the words... I mean, because they've got very fed up with creepy, and they, they said, "Oh God, we're always that creep band." Yeah, he's saying sure. like that. I love the fact what he said. I just want to ask you, Chris, but that that mm. moment where he says, "You know, this is how you present yourself as a kind of you know pop star or rock band to mm. to the music press, and you know, you, you you're not too controversial about this, and you you've got kind of you know you don't slag other bands off too much." I mean, mm. do you remember? When Radiohead at, at that moment, you know, around Pablo Honey and Creep, do you remember? And do you remember what the what the I, general reaction to them was in the context of the music scene? I think Pablo Honey before the Bends, that kind of time, they were generally perhaps just seen as another good up and coming indie rock band. You know, I don't think anyone knew they were going to anyone predicted they were going to turn no, into no. Radiohead. No, show your respect. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think anyone knew that. That was going to happen, but um, but they were very, very good. I remember going to see them at the Garage, which, for people who don't know, is a small place in Highbury, Islington. You know, yeah, maybe yeah, what yeah. three hundred, three fifty capacity. Yeah, yeah, and you could, you know, I remember going right to the front with my pint and probably my cigarette if it was nineteen ninety two. Yes, when you could. Um, <laughs> yeah, but being able to wander down the front and it was kind of they were, just, you know, they were just. It wasn't like Radiohead were not the, you know, the gospel, 
you know tablets that they are that they are now. But they were very good. They're really good. I will say, you know, if I remember how I felt then compared to how perhaps my opinion has changed mm-hmm. over the years, I really enjoyed them. They were terrific. They were tight. They were they were energetic. They were playing the songs from the bends before it had come out. Terrific live band. And then when I went to see them, sort of maybe you know a few years later, once they'd become capital R Radiohead, yeah, yeah. it was very solemn and the audience were very chin scratching yeah, and yeah. You, sh- you know shushing each other and you must be earnest and you must look at the levels of meaning and all this and that was a less enjoyable experience so I always loved the sound of them I love the guitar players and I just became increasingly sick of Tom York and his pain and you know I never saw them live at that time but seeing them on you know on television on stage and there's sort of this this man endlessly going to come crucifix poses and you're thinking just fuck off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just yeah. you know, but I love guitar players in that band. I think they're really. In, I still think they're really interesting sonically. I mean, the, sorry, the, no. the, the rock star thing is strange because on one level, I think I do want my rock stars to be rock stars. Yes. I want them to be larger than life yeah, yeah. and flamboyant, you know. Yeah. But then on, on, another, on another hand, I can kind of see what, what he means. <laughs> why, why should a rock star know any more about politics or whatever yeah. than, than, than the guy working in the corner shop? You know. Yeah. So, yeah. but we miss proper, you know, proper rock stars, pop stars, yeah. big mouths were, were great fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're very funny in the sense if you're talking about Tom's loud guitar and about how on stage that he had always had kind of had this kind of Fender twin turned up full and then ended up just taking tubes out of his Fender twin to cut his volume and he didn't even notice. Um, that's that. And the second interview is, is Phil Selway on the phone to Jim Sullivan, the Boston Globe in 97. They're on the OK Computer Tour talking about significant recent events doing Glastow. So, so basically what you're just describing, them becoming superstars rather than just uh, another good indie band. Well, well let's listen to this. This is, this is them on, on hit Phil Selway on finishing OK Computer. With OK Computer, I mean, you guys obviously took a risk in terms of making uh, a very ambitious record and one that isn't, you know, as obvious, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, and one that's where there are, are definite rewards, but they take a little time to work for. Um, did you know that when you were making it? Was that, uh, you know, or, or, I mean, did you come to that kind of realization uh, at some point? I don't think we actually came to that point until the album was finished and it was mm-hmm. actually sent out to, the, it was actually handed over to the record company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think up to that point, because we'd been we'd been shut away pretty much on our own for for the better part of the year. So we were when we were responding to the music, it's uh, we're responding in a way that yeah, we we you know we either like that, find that interesting, or no, that doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. But there weren't any other considerations beyond that, I think, for us. But having said that, you know, suddenly it it, it, it came out of that very claustrophobic situation into 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 the full light of people of people's comments on it and that was very worrying at the time it was quite quite frightening really Yeah. Quite frightening, really. <laughs> so well spoken, these, these Radiohead chaps. Interesting to hear that, though, because obviously, you know, it, at that point, OK Computer doesn't have the kind of status that it has now. And, and we know more about, I mean, he uses the word claustrophobic. So, you know, we, we learned about how they kind of hold up. And Jane Seymour's 
you know, Jacobean mm. mansion right, outside <laughs> right. Bath mm. for like, you know, months, like, like bands used to do, right, in mm. the 70s. And it's given homeless to stop the road in Oxford. It's not exactly kind no, of massive, yeah. massive <laughs> no. trek. No, no, no. It's not, it's not good for Sunday lunch with mummy and daddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you, you bastard. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I, I, I will declare, I, I think OK Computer is, is, a, is, a, is a masterpiece. I think it's an extraordinary record, one of the great like British rock records. So I, 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 will, uh, I, I will stand by that. I loved it from the moment I heard it. I think Nigel Godrich is an incredible producer. Another reason for to talk about them is that Godrich is, is now back in there. So there's this new record by The Smile, which oh. has just released a number of tracks already to... Spotify, etc. And Godrich has produced that. It's basically Tom and Johnny, probably two kind of key members in a way. Um, but I mean, I would, I would ask. So we've added to the home page, along with your Missy, um, a, a review. I, you may have been talking about this earlier. This review yeah. you did of the Royal Festival Hall around you know, about two thousand. Did it or? just before Kid A is about to come. Okay. Out. So it's an interesting, mm. you know, moment to yeah. to sort of witness. The transition from OK Computer into a much more kind of electronic and techno mm. version mm. of Radiohead. But, I mean, you're a bit, you're not very flattering about well, OK Computer. Like, you, you, you utterly dismiss Paranoid Android, which yeah, I, yeah. I love. I think it's, right. it's ridiculous. Do you have a fight? I would draw that. I, I wouldn't say, I, no, I don't think I'm like a Radiohead hater at all. I don't think I was that. that sort of antagonistic. I think I mainly in that review was talking about the audience. <laughs> you do, yes. You're very it's, funny it's, about the audience. It's a funny audience. thing to judge a band by its audience, yeah. but it, it yeah. can happen when you get that kind of... Thing. I just felt like I was going to be being scolded if I moved. Yeah, you know? right. yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting problem, though, for a band that starts out as such a good live band to then, you know, how A, how do you capture that on your first record? And then if you achieve that, how do you ever move on? Because at some point you're not going to be that new indie band who everyone wants to go and see it in a 350 person venue and you yeah. and if you keep trying to make that record again and again you're not going to really progress artistically or otherwise and so then how how do you navigate that and and then they're obviously all keen and creative musicians and want to explore different things sonically so i think they actually even if they maybe lost a bit of the live magic or whatever it was they did successfully kind of bridge that gap of like yeah. well what what do we what do we where do we go from here basically oh yeah and i think for their audience for their devotees they were still a wonderful live act and still are to this day you know if you went with them on that yeah suspension of disbelief or whatever journey yeah no i just found it all a little bit earnest you know but i'm not a radiohead hater at all I can kind of sure. I like some tracks I, I don't like other tracks you know, I'm that, kind of in the same really, boat actually in, 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 a, in a table debate that's a really yeah, boring, well, boring position to come from but <laughs> Jasper is from Oxford so he has a bias inherently no I mean I, I'm not, I wouldn't characterise myself as a, as a huge Radiohead fan actually I mean I like some of their music. I mean, one of my favourite albums is A Moon Shaped Pool of, yeah, their, yeah, of, their, of their work. I, I think I that, like that, that was a real, a real return to something, some, yeah. some true feeling, which, I, which really resonated with me after kind of not having been so into them. Although, as I've trotted out before on this podcast, I am on In Rainbows clapping uh, as a child, which is quite entertaining <laughs> because they came to my music respect. school as a kid. True respect. But, um, but no, I mean, I... <laughs> There are other Oxford bands that I like better and that I think still do that raw, live energy in a really 
powerful way, like Foles, for example, you know, for me, that's going to be more engaging if they're a guitar band. And, and there are other things that I like more if it's going to be electronic sure. sounding. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I, there are, there's stuff that I really like and stuff that, that doesn't really do it for me. Yeah. This is probably a very appropriate moment to play the next clip because it's actually Phil Solway talking about them being seen as der gits, uh, uh, which yeah. is course, kind of appropriate. <laughs> yes. Why not? Why not? I can see why people think, think we're a bunch of dour gits, actually, but <laughs> when you look at the press and the photographs, I mean, we're, in, we're not a smiley bunch, really. You're not a smiley well. bunch, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, I mean, also, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, when people home in on Tom, I mean, they, they do tend to produce a very yeah. caricatured version of him as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's inevitable with all bands, all band members come across as caricatures sure. of, of, of a certain side of them anyway. Mm-hmm. So, I feel quite, I suppose we, we do feel quite um, distanced from that. I'd actually like immediately after that to read a bit from that review which because I think it's really nice there are spells where all this we are in the presence of God stuff is penetrated where things stop being an unintentional parody of you two scraping their earnest nadir before ricocheting back to inspiration Tom's voice does do things unholy angelic demonic things which force you to see to hear to feel his pain or someone's I get that at the risk of sticking my neck out radio have something thing <laughs> <laughs> there you go what a profit yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and i and you know I, I i really agree with that in the sense i i there is something profoundly irritating about tom york but i also think he's an incredible singer and he is an incredible singer songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. you know i really do yeah. he has written i mean it's not just okay computer things on like hail to the thief i think are just sort of combination between his sort of lyricism and johnny's just like well i just that's cool. I think Johnny's a great foil to him and a fantastic composer in his yes. own right yeah. as well. I, you know, I think yeah. No, I, no I, I, I agree. I, I, I think he's the most interesting thing about the band, but then again, you know. He's certainly <laughs> the most musically talented, no doubt yeah. about that. But he I mean, yeah, but he's, he's clearly got a series of references, which is way outside normal rock and roll yeah. for a start, you, you know, that, that he's got an interest in, like um, avant garde composers yeah. and so on and so forth. It's right from the beginning, it's there. Sure, that's sure. the thing. Yeah. And also, just as the way he plays guitar is close to, to some extreme sort of um, avant jazz sort of person in a way, or, yes. or, or Sonny Chirac or one of those sorts of yes. guys. Yeah. You know, yes. Which is, I find, I personally find really yeah. interesting. But I think, in a way, I mean, the bigger picture story is that Radiohead did react against being a sort of rock band you know not an indie rock band anymore they were on you know parlophone and kid a really was sort of kicking against the that prick it was like we are you know we are not just a guitar based rock mm. band and they have done a lot of i think pretty do, do, interesting do, do, things do you think there's an analogy with blur i vaguely the blur sort of again reacted against this sort of narrow box of being you know 
a Britpop band that actually kind of went further and further out. Sure. And I think that, and I'm not a huge Blur fan either, but I think Blur became much more interesting around the time of the album Blur and so on. Well, and you look at things like Gorillaz and the Marley yeah. music stuff that yeah. David yeah. got involved, yeah, Good yeah. Band, The Ugly Time. Yeah. I mean, you know, they did, they, yeah, they very much did not kind of rest on their laurels, I would say. I mean, I'm not as big and a fan. Par- but... And they were all on Parlophone. Yeah, there was another group that was on Parlophone that constantly reinvented themselves, wasn't there? From the sixties, cheeky chapping from Liverpool. Yeah, I think it's it's safe to say that I I much more support you know a Radiohead or a Blur experimenting, trying new things, as as opposed to an Oasis doing the same thing over and over. over. So definitely on that side of the divide. Yes, we can all coalesce around. Yeah, you you don't like something if someone's trying to do something that is in itself admirable. Particularly the time when everyone's everyone's sounding the same, and when I think you know you, 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 you were at, at the cold face as a music yeah. writer in the nineties when there's something this massive bands came out of this country, most of whom were sort of undistinguishable from one another. It's so, going to be interesting, isn't it? In twenty five years, how many Britpop bands? Will will still be spoken about? It'd probably just be Blur and Oasis with supporting roles for pulp. Suede pulp. and Pulp. pulp. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, but Pulp aren't really a Brit they pop band. Really, no, 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 at the time, yes, yes, yeah. And Blur had had certainly been something very different yeah. before. Britain. Are you listening? Have you listened to Book of the Week, which is Jarvis Cocker's no uh, thing? It's, it's interesting. I don't think it's probably quite as good as everyone wants it to be because we all love him. This is his memoir. Yes. Yeah. And we all kind of love him. It's, 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 it's okay. It's, I, I think I may, I may fork out. And, good yeah. pop, bad pop is a great title. It's good, very good. <laughs> That's enough for me. Also, the book of the week, he actually played like the very first demo they recorded. He plays it on the radio huh. show. No. And that is pretty fantastic anyway I, I, did, I mean I remember Pulp from the 80s I mean fire, was it Fire Records used yes, to send yes. me Pulp Records and this is what 86 80, yeah, yeah, way yeah, way back and I, yeah. I, I, I just I can't say I love them I would kind of play this new Pulp 12 inch and sent to me and mm. just think I always struggle to get past this sort of non-voice you know I'm just I'm, maybe just, I'm maybe, maybe, a singer I think guy. we probably need to have a, a serious podcast discussion about Pulp maybe you should hold fire until then because... right hold fire records <laughs> well that does bring us to the end of that section we're just now going to we're going to talk about what's new in the library and Chris as we always say to our guests if you hear the name of something that just sparks a kind of memory just just jump in right Wave your arms frantically. And, <laughs> or just uh, start talking. Or just start talking <laughs> over it. That would work. Yeah, yeah, the great Maureen Cleave, the Evening Standard in 64. The Ronettes are visiting England, so she meets the Ronettes, which oh. is great. Oh. And Estelle, the others say, is the sophisticated one. She doesn't like the same guys we do, Ronnie said. Estelle agreed that she certainly did not. I like the guys over here, she said, on mo- the motorcycles and black jackets and tight pants. She was a rocker. Estelle Ronette was a rocker. <laughs> that <laughs> love fantastic. That. I love that. I mean, they did have affairs with quite a few British musicians, I believe. I, I have, there have been the, the tour buses. Yes, yes. yes. Good for them. Well, good I mean, also, you know, the British musicians must be good grief. Oh, these glamorous women you? from New York. And it's like... Oh my I've God! You never know. seen anything. Just like imagine the, the you, you was here, John Lennon's <laughs> jaw hitting the floor from here. John you know? Lennon's hitting <laughs> <laughs> the floor.
John Mayall to Kevin Swift, Beat Instrumental 67. And this, this, this is time when John Mayall's band held one after the other the leading lights of the British blues guitar explosion. But first of all, he's talking about John McVie, who, of course, mm. became famous as part of Fleetwood Mac, is the Mac in Fleetwood Mac. He says, John McVie is the best blues bass guitarist in Britain or America, as far as I'm concerned. He's been out of the band twice for being drunk and disorderly, but he's very, very good. And I think in that period when he was drinking, he was frustrated because the band wasn't playing as it should be. I've went describing as drunk and disorderly, which is actually was a criminal offence. That's what justifies him kicking out of the band. <laughs> but then it's very, it's very healthy for us when Eric went, Eric Clapton obviously, went because this adulation thing was getting ridiculous. We were pulling in the wrong kind of people. Young fans would come along just because of this God thing. As an Eric, Eric Clapton's god. Bit of a purist, perhaps. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> certainly was. Lillian Roxon, this is fantastic. Sydney Morning Herald, 1969, reporting on the Stonewall riot. And this is reported a week after the riot. Wow. Was it covered in English press? Quite possibly not. But here we are, Sydney Morning Herald, the wonderful Lillian Roxon. And she, she meets this uh, one redhead. If the queens of America ever get together, said one redhead, aiming her stiletto heel with vicious precision, it's the end, baby. We've had enough. I just think it's marvellous to have something about Stonewall written the week after it happens on the side. That's really you know. great. Yeah. Love that. Moving on to Sounds 81. Sandy, the wonderful Sandy Robertson, interviewing Popo Vu's Florian Flick, Frick. Florian Frick. You didn't be able to pronounce that better. Florian, Florian Frick. Frick. Uh, thank you. From thank our, you. our native German speaker. <laughs> correspondent. Um, he says, a, a great German actor has said that Herzog can only work with dwarves, crazes, freaks and Klaus Kinski. Probably a better. This is Werner. About right. Not, it, not, not a sort of keyboard player in yeah. Popol. How do you pronounce Popol, Werner? I was, I was going to stand back and <laughs> say <laughs> yes. that you pronounced uh, it. Uh, so we get the computers. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really a German. German. I, mean, I mean, if you were saying it in German accent, I might say Popol. I don't know. It's, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right, because it is very German, peculiar. So I don't mind being nasty. Leaping forward to 1997. 1997 is quite a long time ago now. This is a guy called Gerald Bean. Um, interviewed by new writer we've got on board, Emma Warren. Very pleased about her. I wrote for a lot of jockey stuff. And he says, have you got a national insurance number? That's your number. Bill Gates is on a mission to make a one-world computer system. <laughs> 1997. 25 years ago. Another anniversary. Another anniversary. Yeah, spotting the Yeah, spreading conspiracy theories about Bill Gates. I mean, just a couple more things. This week is Pete Johnson, the LA Times, reviewing the Impressions at the Whiskey in 1967 in Los Angeles. Well, first of all, it's lovely to get a live review of the Impressions from 1967. He says, their sound is smooth and rich without being slick. The polish of years of performing has not made them insensitive to their material. The Impressions are not as flashy an act as are their Motown competitors. There are no intricate dance routines or acrobatics with microphones, but their stage presence and sure singing ability make them an excellent performing group. Just very, very pleased to have that in the library. The impressions. I saw the Impressions. Wow. Did you? Live. Not, not with Curtis. No, but not with Curtis? Yes. It was, a, reuni- it was wow. a reunion. I don't know if it was a tour or just a few shows that they did at the Hollywood Bowl. I went with Harvey Kubernick and our mutual friend Denny Bruce to see, I think it was billed as like Curtis Mayfield, Jerry Butler and The Impressions. So the, the set comprised three different segments. Yeah. Solo Jerry, solo Curtis. Yeah. I mean, it was just magical, even wow. though they were obviously met, you know, quite a few years older than they had been yeah, when yeah, yeah, yeah. saw them. But I mean, just, just 
the harmonies oh, were still I mean, you know, we love that. So I remember when I was with my band, we had Timmy Helms and those guys, so our backing singers. And at one point in rehearsal, I started playing I'm So Proud, and these three guys started singing it. And it was just one of those just glorious moments, mm. you know. It's nothing quite like the human voice together with other human voices. It's, 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 but, also, but then you've got Curtis's guitar behind oh. it. And, and, you know, without Curtis's guitar, like Hendrix, all of Hendrix's ballad style is based on Curtis Mayfield. Than all the world. And I'm so proud, I'm so proud, I'm so proud of you. So I'm going to learn the tone now. Ray Parker <laughs> Jr. has been interviewed by Michael Goldberg in Rolling Stone 84. He says, Some girls would just take their clothes off and say, Let's get it on. You have to resist. You have to be strong. <laughs> that's, yeah. my, that's my love. Can you get a call? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Can I call someone? They're taking their clothes off. What do I do? <laughs> Resist. We'll send, we'll send someone round. Resist, Ray. Resist. Uh, because that your spot on. This, this is 84, so it's exactly his Ghostbusters exactly theme. Exactly the time when the he hit. stole the Ghostbusters theme from Huey Lewis. Who? Oh. But no, he turns around and says, we both stole it from M, pop music. Oh. That, that's that's like cool. Yeah, he says that's where we both stole can, that riff from. Hilarious. Since, as you mentioned, I can, I can, I can yeah. never. So he says that in this interview because that, that comes, the Huey Lewis thing comes up. And yeah, the Huey was, I think, going to sue him. And, and, it's well, not wise to say where you stole something from. No, but, no, but he just turns around and says, look, we all stole everything from everywhere, you yeah. know, which was his point. But he's actually yeah. right, actually. Pop music. Where do you stand on stealing? <laughs> well, I quite fancy these microphones. So, if you can look at it, what's on there? I think it, there's so much out there in the ether yeah. now. So many yeah. notes and melodies that you know. There's only how would you come up with something that no human being in all these yeah. thousands of years has, has ever come up so with? So you're not going to take Ed Sheeran to court. No, uh, but but on the other <laughs> hand, if it's, if it's a kaching possibility, <laughs> no. I mean, I think we're reaching the stage where everything has been done and it's what you do with it, I think. Yes, I, I mean... I uh, agree. And then also, of course, the use of sampling sort of changed the landscape in terms of how you can appropriate, appropriate things now and to make them your own. But then again, I, I, you, but then again you listen to My Sweet Lord by George Harrison and it is... The chiffons. The chiffons, you know, note for the fucking note. So, you know... And they won that, of And course. they won that. Whereas the yeah. guy who took Sheeran to court did not. Mm. I've never, heard, I've never heard what that was, so it's impossible for you're us to tell. You're going to get some it? chances, though, aren't you? The more you're yeah. going to get someone who, you know, yeah. well, well, my song says, "Oh yeah," Shame so any you. other song that says, yeah. "Oh yeah," I'm yeah. Going to I mean, I think it's a, it's a difficult line to draw because, on the one hand, you, you say, "Well, yes, a, a lot of stuff is out there," and you know, how are you going to come up with something new? And on the other hand, you don't want someone who is already like number one pop star in the world mm. to get to just. Yeah, you're right. Appropriate. Steal from yeah. it and appropriate yeah. stuff from those who are who are further Sorry. down. And then, you have, then you have a problem with bands like Led Zeppelin, who ruthlessly stole left, mm. right, and centre. I mean, they would put their names on the credits of stuff as written by Willie Dixon and so on and so forth. Mm. And I, ne- I never heard the Spirit. the Randy Spirit, the Randy California track, mm. which is Stairway to Heaven's intro. And apparently, it is absolutely note for note. I haven't actually personally heard it's, it. I don't know about note for note. I had to interview Spirit once. Right. And had to do all the, the surviving members and had to listen 
listened to it a lot. And that, <laughs> I would say maybe 55%. You know, it's not no right. planet, as people say. Yeah. But, but yeah. they have been touring with Led Zeppelin, so to come across... Anyway... I think I mean, it depends a bit on intent, and it depends a bit on your attitude as to when... If, if someone says, well, you know, were you influenced by this? You ought to own up to it, and you ought to kind of... You know, say well, this is what we're doing, and then if there is if there is something like with samples, you probably should yeah. pay that person for the use of them. You know, it's kind of there's it's a, it's difficult because you're on the one you don't you don't want to restrict creativity, but you also don't want to kind of just make it a free for all because when it is a free for all, the same people hoard all of the all yeah. of the yeah, no, power and acclaim and everything. So I mean, well, what about you know that bittersweet symphony, which is the the, the Lou Golden that's right orchestra. Um, thing, yeah. And the thing is that there's two such completely different items that, you know, but they end up having to give all their publishing to the mm, Stones. They did, they did, mm. I know. I remember Robert Plant saying to me once on this issue that he was, I don't know whether he and Jimmy were going to a press conference or something and Jimmy sort of goes to Robert, well, what if they ask, you know, ask us about ripping off, you know, the old blues guys? <laughs> Robert just said, Robert said, just keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> well, worse that effect, just keep walking. <laughs> oh, God. So that's my lot for these What's two your weeks. lot, Just? My lot, I'm going to start with an interview with Fallout Boy by Stevie Chick in The Guardian in October 2008. I believe our colleague Tony added that recently, so thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. It's actually a very funny interview. I mean, make what you will of Fallout Boy's music, but Pete Wentz, frontman of Fallout Boy, appears near comatose, resembling the fictional rock star Hot Black Desiato from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> who spent a year being dead for tax reasons. Had to get that in because I'm such a huge fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide. But he says, I feel like the last person who should be giving advice to anyone about anything, Went says of the fans who deluge Fallout Boy's website with desperate pleas for help. I think part of it is we're living in the age of the internet. If it had been around back in the days of the Smiths and the Cure, I'm sure people would be writing to their website asking, Oh, Morrissey, I'm so depressed too. What should I do? <laughs> the days of the Smiths and the Cure, can you imagine? Morrissey is a, is a sort of agony uncle not, not really who you would choose <laughs> <Not> <laughs> <really>. <laughs> next up Grandmaster Flash breaks down Netflix's new series The Get Down Alan Light and Mother Jones in July 2016 and Baz Luhrmann obviously got Grandmaster Flash to consult on a bunch of that of that series and it's just a, a fascinating interview if you're interested in the early days of hip hop and the technology that was involved because you know Grandmaster Flash yeah, yeah. was very involved in the invention of scratching and, and all of that and there's a funny bit where, where Alan Light asks, what was the hardest part of consulting on this series? And Grandmaster Flash says, after a month or two, Baz says, Flash, I'd like to make you a character. I says, hell no, I'm not going in no film. He says, no, I want a young Flash, someone to play you. Two months later, I meet somebody that looks like I made him. What's your name? He says, Mamadou, I've been hired to play you. I want to learn everything about you. And Alan Light goes, the kid really does look like you. And Grandmaster Flash says, I actually asked him, what's your mum's name? 
I didn't know it, so I was like, thank goodness. This <laughs> <laughs> is oh, great. Right. And I, did, did, I mean, did, did, you watch you the, into, did you watch the Get Down? Uh, the first, the, yeah, the pilot episode. Right. Yeah. Um, what is, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it, really. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'd like, yeah, I'd, need, I'd have to go back and watch the other episodes to give a definitive verdict. But I like the idea of it, and I like that someone's... Going there. I mean, what about saying you, you did interview Grandmaster Flash? Uh, there is a piece that, I think that we've got. Not that he's, he's, no. he's tied to. I, I, I no, can, very, I, various MCs and so forth, I, but not. It's, not Flash, it's so Baz Luhrmann. Yes. I mean, I because I, 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 I curious that exhibition at the, the, the hospital about the first containers of hip hop. You know, I kind of dived in there, yeah. and I watched this, and I found. I mean, I like Baz Luhrmann's movies are fine. But they're so camp and so extravagant, mm. and this. Reproduction of the Bronx as some glittering golden world where beautiful women step out of ruined mm. buildings and sort of then dance on cars. But then let's uh, go. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but, that, but that's the problem. I'm, the ro- I'm so the wrong person. It's too romanticised. Well, no, but then again, I can see the, the, how great that is, but just yeah. not for it me. It's a little you bit know. pastiche. It's terribly pastiche. But, it's like a Roxy music. But it does get. It does. Which again, I'm sold. But yeah, it, does, it, does, it is very well researched. It does get a lot of the details yeah. right because because he spoke to people like Grandmaster Flash. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you want to if you want to know the story, is him. He he goes into why he decided that he he wanted to even mix records together. I was annoyed with the way DJs were playing. The part that would get people dancing the hardest would be the drum solo, but the rate was always like 10 seconds long. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. I have to be able to make one long song of drum solos. <laughs> so he starts researching needles, yeah. elliptical, spherical, torque theory. How long do you oh, need yeah. to take the, the record off the I mean, platter? From what I understand is he was the first guy to use the, the 1200, the text the, the, the turntable. Because it had the best talk. Yeah, it had the best talk. Stuff. He didn't invent scratching. That was no. Grandma's of Theodore. Well, I love the story Grandma's of Theodore. He's got his hand on a record and his mum's banging on the door saying, turn it down. He kind of leans to the, under the door and his hand moves the turntable and he hears it. And it's like, ah, you know. But Flash built... I mean, Flash did something which is forgotten. He used to go to disco, proper disco stuff. He saw disco DJs. And there's guys like Pete DJ Jones and all these guys doing mobile discos in Brooklyn, primarily way before sort of hip-hop inverted commas. And they were doing that. They were queuing up records and doing all sorts of stuff. So and he saw that they were using mixers. He built his own mixer. So he glued sort of disco technology yeah. to, says, to, to what you know, Cool Herc had done, which is yeah. playing the, the breakbeat over and over again. Says, then mixers. I needed to be able to hear the mix before you do. That's when yeah. I came up with the peekaboo system. Yeah. And then there was a problem. A new turntable had a mat, like a big rubber pancake. Too much drag. And so then he goes, into, he goes out and buys sort of bits of fabric because yeah. his mother was a seamstress and he then irons together these bits of, he hits it with spray starch and irons it and, and creates what he called a wafer which allowed him to make to do this yeah, it's, 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 it's a great piece yeah. it's a lovely interview so that's yeah, lovely that's that and then lastly I just wanted briefly to mention our first piece about Nigerian German singer Ayor who is a kind of neo-soul singer-songwriter and she's from Germany with, you know, Nigerian background. And I, I happen to really like her music. And I wanted to mention it also because she actually mentions Missy. There was a time when I was listening to French hip-hop. I liked I Am and Joey Star from NTM. My favourite group was Cyan Supercrew. At that time when I was listening to them, I didn't know the day would come when we'd actually become real good friends. I really enjoyed the flow, the freshness of the French rap. Then, of course, MC Salah, when he did the song with Missy Elliott, All In My Grill. I really enjoyed that because it was like a new blend, a sign that music doesn't have boundaries. Which really speaks to what you were saying earlier about how Missy would go and, and just take influences from, from yeah. anywhere. And I think it's great. And 
I know it makes really, it's, you know, kind of mixture of sort of neo soul and folk, different influences. A, a real singer songwriter and has a really nice voice. You'll have in the office for I will. Old, old bastards like Barney and I just sort of. <laughs> and that was Miles Marshall Lewis speaking to her in Essence magazine oh, a couple of years excellent. ago. So. Some people say that I'm too open. They say it's not good to let them know. Everything about me. Well, that's a nice way to end the episode. It remains for all of us to thank you so much for coming in, Chris. Such a pleasure. A real delight. That really was huge fun. Yeah, so oh, so more power to you. Pleasure honour. Good luck with your, the Velvets book and future publications. Which is getting rave reviews. Uh, so left, far, right so good. and centre. Yeah, I'm very, very grateful. And um, I'm, I'm sure my 15 minutes is, is, is on its 14th minute. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> The clock yeah. is ticking. Yeah. Let's enjoy it while it's. Yeah. What I did say, Chris Roberts will enjoy 15 minutes <laughs> yeah. at some point in the future. He, he and he also predicted the 14th minute he yeah. would come on the Rock to Back Pages he podcast. Did. He yeah. said that. Yeah, in 14 minutes and 22 seconds. <laughs> um, we're going to go out with a clip of Tom talking about creep. But on that, that's, on that's that, the on idea. That, on that's that, the plan. On that Stan. happy note. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah. Yeah, Thanks so much, Chris. It's yeah. been really great. Yeah. Oh, pleasure. Absolutely. So we have definitely come to the end of the episode. Please review the episode on Apple Podcasts and other platforms if you feel so inclined. Yeah, we really appreciate, appreciate the reviews. It really helps get Does podcasts help. to more listeners. And so it'd be nice to get, get one which counterbalances that one on Apple Podcasts, which talks about this ghastly false laugh that <laughs> a certain contributor to Rock's Back Pages podcast has. Yeah, so if you could post that you love Mark Pringle's laugh, <laughs> we'll pay you. <laughs> uh, all right, so this is me and all of us saying goodbye to you listeners. Bye! Bye. I read that Creep is about a real person, but that you were sorry you had mentioned ever mentioned that. Yeah, I uh, still am. Because, uh, I mean, in some ways it's, it's good to say it because it gives people a context, but on the other hand, it's a shame that, that people need a context for it. If they like the song, then that should be enough, I think. I think people should write it their own way, in their own head. But the song is in the first person, so I mean, it's, if it's about a person, it's more like, I mean, are you, is it you in the person of somebody else? Yeah, always. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's just how I write, really. I mean, I went to the whole phase of sort of writing wee songs, but it's kind of really stupid. <laughs> you know, because, like, well, and sometimes it works. Um, but, like, in that song, when you say I, you don't mean I, Tom. You mean I, the person that the song's about. Yeah, but it's very difficult to distinguish. Um, and, and that's kind of the point, if you know what I mean. I wish I was special. So fucking special But I'm a creep I'm a That was Tom York in conversation with Ira Robbins in 1993, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Chris Roberts. His new book, The Velvet Underground, is published by Palazzo and available now from all good bookshops. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Roxback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at roxbackpages.com. Roxback Pages.
I'm a 